Hello, and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Dale Jarvis, and today's guest is Shirley Scott. Shirley, or Cheryl the Pearl, is a hand knitter with a special love for history. A librarian by profession, Cheryl wrote a book about the history of knitting in Canada called Canada Knits, Craft and Comfort in a Northern Land. Originally from New Brunswick, Cheryl has made her home in Newfoundland for the past 10 years. And why did she move here? A taste for penitential exile is one possible explanation. Her love of history, hand knitting, and North Atlantic culture is perhaps a better one. In Newfoundland, she has found shared interests, deep friendships, and much food for the soul. And we are richer for having you here. Shirley, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dale. It is a delight to get to talk to you. So we have uh, we have about 30 minutes here, and we're going to do a brief history of knitting in Canada, the entire history of knitting in Canada right. in 30 minutes. <laughs> How do you think? Oh, oh I, I've done it in 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have, luckily, we have more than 30, we have more than 30 seconds. Um, uh, maybe, maybe we'll start off with the, a bit of your personal history, though. First, when did, you, when did you discover you were a knitter? Well, I learned when I was seven. And I do have a theory, isn't it true that Roman Catholics think from the age of seven on you have responsibility for your own soul? Well, I think there is something about the age of seven that where there's a certain kind of learning that takes place, because you will find most children, most people who learn to knit as children learned about the age of seven. Yeah. And it was, you know, taught at home. I made a little um, yellow scarf. I can still remember it. Lots of us remember our first thing. And um, it quickly <laughs> narrowed to a map of Africa. <laughs> <laughs> and I used to take it to my mother to loosen it up. She had a worse time when she learned to knit. This was rural New Brunswick. They had homemade knitting needles, but they were not allowed to knit on Sunday. Right, okay. And she was in a strict Presbyterian Scottish family. And she was found by her grandmother knitting behind the dining room door on the Sunday afternoon after she had just learned. On the Sabbath. Yes. Yes. And her grandmother told her she would have to take all those stitches out with her teeth when she got to heaven. (laughs) (laughs) And I've told that story, and another woman said to me, I was told I'd have to take them out with my nose. (laughs) (laughs) That would be, yeah. I mean, wouldn't you be happy today if your kid was knitting behind the door on a Sunday? (laughs) That was great. So was it your mother who taught you that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it was always passed down in the old days. Yeah. yeah. And you you wrote some of your fifth generation knitter? Yeah, on one side of the family, sixth on the other. Wow. <laughs> that just means everybody. Everybody. Everybody after they came to Canada. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And so where did your family come from originally? What was your... Part Ireland, part Scotland. Yeah. So kind of very yeah. Canadian in yes, a way. Yes, it's yeah. that story. Yeah. You can tell with the blonde hair, the blue eyes, all that stuff. A few black Irish in our family, I think, but we won't talk about them. All right. <laughs> now, um, let's talk a little bit about the the history then of, of knitting as it as it came to North America. We we live here in this place, Newfoundland and Labrador, which has some of the earliest kind of archaeological examples of of knitting. You know, we mm-hmm. have a, from Lance Meadows, we have the the fabulous uh, spindle whirl, which was one of the first proofs yes. of European settlement. Actually, here. there are the facts of wool work. Of wool work, there was no knitting until the Liviers brought it. Oh, very good. Now, what yeah. about, what about? Uh, wasn't there some stuff in, in the Basque? Yes, uh, the Basque 
uh, whalers, yeah. they wore knitted clothes, um, probably made in France or Spain where they came from. And then it would have been imported. Yes. They've been found on, on the bodies that were found. Mm-hmm. And um, if you go to the rooms in the museum part on the third floor, which I go to often, and study the outfit of the Basque whaler in the glass case there, you'll see his hat is knitted. And the rest of it was woven and felted up, you know, right. to make yeah. it nice and warm. Yeah. And, and so, that so that may be the oldest thing in Canada in any museum. But I, do, I doubt that it was made here. Right. It would have been yeah. made away and, yeah. and, and by someone's, someone's sweetheart. Yes, that's <laughs> or right. Or mother. Yeah, yeah. And then brought over. Yeah. yeah. And, and do you recognize the, the, the way it's put together? Is, is the way that the well, Basque were knitted Well, it's been quite similar? studied. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. I only have looked at it and read the notes on it. And I, I read some parts in an archaeology book a while ago. Um, so I do know it was knit just like we'd make a toque today in the round and that it does have a turn up on it, but that it is divided. It doesn't go all the way around. There's a little knot. And it's painted. It's painted. With shellac. Oh. There is a design that is painted on it and they don't know why. Hmm. So never heard of that anywhere else. You could knit it in just as easy, but... <laughs> so when, so when European settlers did yeah. start to settle permanently uh, in the New World, they brought these, these old traditions with yeah, them. Yeah, the um, First Nations did not knit. Hmm. Um, they did in Peru, but not, not until after the conquest. So it was always brought by Europeans. They did do things that sometimes look like knitting with string or cord that they would make. And on the Pacific coast of Canada, lots done with cedar bark weaving yeah, yeah. to make garments that you wouldn't know were, came from a tree, right? Yeah. So, and they used to also, they had a dog that produced wool on the Pacific coast, a Salish wool dog, and they used to pull out the fleece uh, from the dog and use it to stuff their boots and things like that, sometimes work it in with the cedar bark. None of that that we know of on the East Coast. Mm. If they had had those animals, they would have stuck it in their boots. You know. I was I was in Victoria uh, in September 2015, and, and we I was talking with a knitter there, and we were talking about Cowichan knitting. Yes, it's very famous on yeah. on the west coast and and throughout Canada. You know, yeah. Lester B. Pearson. It's well known. Wore <laughs> these, these these Cowichan sweaters. Yeah, and it was a Scottish tradition that was then introduced into the the local indigenous population, and the they kind of made method it. of knitting it. Is Scottish. Yes. The woman, Jeremina Colvin, mm-hmm. actually from um, Fair Isle, who taught the Cowichan people the circular method okay. of sweater knitting. Yeah. Why aren't we technical here? <laughs> but the um, motifs were usually native to the people of the area. That's why they put the killer whale in and the salmon yeah. and those things. But she taught them how to do it in a circle. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about knitting here on the East Coast. Then. Yeah. Um, nothing is documented. <laughs> um, some PhD students out there should be talking to people there about we go. this. PhD but students, if yes. you're listening, there's a job Listen, for you. listen. Uh, we do know a bit more in Labrador because Them Days has interviewed a lot of people and published things. We do know that the Moravian missionaries taught knitting and they taught 
Anywhere missionaries came, they taught knitting. That includes nuns in Quebec, and that includes the Sisters of St. Anne on Vancouver Island. They're the ones that I know of. But it was always thought of, I guess, as a useful thing. But also, First Nations people pick up those skills very quickly. They've made their own clothing for thousands of years. They know how everything should be shaped. Mm-hmm. This was just a different way of doing it. So we know that. We also think there might have been a contribution by the men of the Hudson's Bay Company in Labrador because they could all knit, being from Shetland and Orkney. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, it's interesting. You know, we had um, we had Joanne Carr on the on the show, and I was uh, I was talking to her about this. Um, relationship between Orkney Islands and Labrador. There's Bakey is a very common yes, Labrador, yes, an Orkney Labrador man. name, and that's yeah. an Orkney, and it was the Hudson Bay Company that brought those, right. those Orkney yeah. men over who intermarried with Inuit women yes. and Labrador. It was said that only men from Shetland, Orkney, or the remote islands could uh, understand the isolation and cope with it. Right. Yeah. Also, that was the um, Hudson Bay Company provisioned its ships in Orkney, so Stromness and places like that. Maybe Kirkwall, Stromness for sure is where they picked up everything that they they needed and brought it over, including all their crew. And they came with good wool socks. They came with wool socks, but (laughs) they knew how to replace them. Their problem would have been getting wool. Right. You see, because there were no sheep. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not sure how the transition came eventually. They would have got some wool, brought some with them probably, but eventually they would have had to figure something out. Yeah. And so when did you start to see kind of distinctively Canadian styles of knitting then? There aren't many that you can trace. Hmm. You can trace it here. You can trace the cowich in knitting. You can trace it in Newfoundland and probably in little pockets of the country, there are traditions. You know, perhaps where Finnish people settled in Manitoba, you'll find a a tradition, things like that, but they're not very well documented, so I don't really know that. But it, nothing, knitting was not even uh, a common skill in Britain until after Tudor times. It was all done by special guys and guilds for a long time, and for ordinary people to learn how to do it, it took quite a while. I think it was almost into the 1700s before Scandinavians all took up knitting. So it wouldn't have been till the 19th century that you'd really see it, I think. Also, there was a thing in some parts of Canada, it was what the servants did. You know, people came here and they tried to keep those old class distinctions until they nearly froze to death. And then they figured out, (laughs) gee, maybe I better learn this too. The girl isn't doing them fast enough. Here I am embroidering when it's 40 below out, you know. So there was a, there must have been a social thing that went on there too, where finally people thought, oh, I guess we all better just get to this and make some socks. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, in, the, in the early period, where were people getting the wool? That I do not know. But if you had good connections with England or Scotland, wool would have been very easy to get. Right. If there were ships, if ships brought it, that would be where. Until they got small flocks of sheep of their own. Right. Which you would do that pretty quick if you were a colonist because you'd have the meat and you'd have the wool, which is very good. And the sheep that came to Newfoundland, they're not quite declared a separate breed now, but they're known that they're very distinctive. They're rough old things, I'll tell you. Living on seaweed half the time and uh, running free here and there. And uh, that would be the wool that they spun. 
But um, they were spinning very high-quality wools in Britain, um, well, any time after the Industrial Revolution when it became mechanized. From the 1700s, definitely good cotton twine, rope, stuff like that, but good, in Victorian times, very good quality hand-knitting wool. Oh. Now, you, you've talked about kind of those Anglo traditions. Was was it a, was knitting a popular tradition in Quebec? Yes, but you know I cannot uh, substantiate very much by the literature. I went as far as I could in Quebec when I was doing my book about twenty five years ago and visited there and whatnot. It had very nearly died out. Um, the Quebecois became very modern very fast, but I think now it is back. You know, and people are studying it and doing it again. But it was uh, like a different part of the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in Newfoundland, what, what types of things were people knitting? Well, what you needed, okay, socks and mitts, would probably be number one. They always knit sweaters to wear on the water. Mm-hmm. You know, they were called Guernseys, the very same as were knit in Britain. Um, absolutely wonderful almost waterproof sweaters, and that would be all that men wore to see with some homemade oilskins over them probably most of the time. So those would be the important things. Underwear became very big, men's underwear perfectly made, perfectly knit. I have no idea how they knew how to do it, but they do. They have them in the rooms. They're lovely. And it's just kind of like a one Pardon piece. Pardon me, a, a one, one piece. piece. Yeah. All trimmed with cotton around the waistband and just beautiful. I don't know how they got them off the guys to put them in the museum. <laughs> <laughs> but apparently the problem with them was always breaking in a new set. Nobody liked to do that. And you'll see that they are darned over and over beautifully. Because they would have been, I guess, itchy against yes, the skin. Yes, at That's first, until it got well-worn yeah. and washed a few hundred times. So. Yeah. Yeah. So you, and you, I don't think they took them off that much. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can imagine not. Yeah. Um, so, you know, they say that you say they have the, those in the rooms. Around what time period? How old are those uh, pieces? Uh, I can't remember that exactly. They would be possibly 19th or early 20th, early 20th century. century. Yeah. yeah. Not old, old. Um, not the rooms and probably nowhere else has very old knitting because it was worn to death. Yes. You know, that was all. Yeah. yeah, worn to death. Now, uh, tell me about um, the Newfoundland trigger mitt. Yeah. Well, you'll find trigger mitts in lots of places um, that's around the North Atlantic. Mm-hmm. You'll find them in Europe, definitely in Norway, where they often did prefer gloves, though. Um, just wherever men worked outside, you really had to have that. See, Newfoundlanders are really smart because we learned in science it's thumb-finger opposition that distinguishes humans from the higher primates. <laughs> and Newfoundlanders figured that out real quick. You've got to be <laughs> able to pick things up and use that thumb and use that finger. And the word trigger mitt, of course, comes from the use in hunting, but in the fishery, to grab your knife, every kind of thing, to drive a nail outside in winter. Not many people in Newfoundland sat at desks mm-hmm. to do their work. So that was figured out pretty well. Um, there are some distinctive things about the way they're made that show that was adapted here in Newfoundland. So how, how so? Um, the top of the mitten and the palm of the mitten is always done in a pattern called salt and pepper. And that's one dark stitch, one light stitch. That's probably the warmest pattern you can do in knitting. And because you're using two wools, one dark one and one light one, it's twice as thick 
and that was always called double ball knitting here. In other places, it's sometimes called feral knitting, double ball knitting, and sometimes they just call them double mitts. Mm -hmm. I have a friend who told a story about his mother who um, only went to school one day in her life. And when she went the first day, she didn't quite catch on to ABC as fast as the teacher would have liked. And the teacher said to her, if you come back to school tomorrow, you better wear your double mitts. Because if you get strapped, you're going to feel it. And she never came back. <laughs> Can you believe it? But anyhow, the uh, the double mitts kept you uh, safe from lots of things. So. <laughs> now, tell me about um, uh, the pa- patterns. Like, what, mm-hmm. what what are some kind of traditional Newfoundland patterns? Well, you'll see a diamond in yep. 90% of them. And you will find the very same patterns in the Baltic countries, Estonia. I've seen many there. I've seen them in Norway. Definitely in England and Scotland, you'll see the patterns. Yeah. And um, actually, if you were a knitter and had to knit 200 pairs of mitts for your family, you'd be making up patterns pretty quick. So sometimes they put little changes to them. You can't actually look at one and say this only comes from that area because they were passed around. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you you develop them on your own. I've done it, you know, by accident, usually by making a mistake and saying, oh, that's kind of nice. I'll just figure out how to do it, you know. So there are these famous stories of, you know, a, a fisherman, you know, falling overboard and being washed up somewhere else and and them recognizing what community he they was They are apocryphal. Is it, I was curious. You know, so it's just a, <laughs> that it's all just a, starts with a story from Ireland from J.M. Singh's play, Riders to the Sea, where a, a, a corpse was found, and he had a sweater on, and his sister recognized she had knit it. But it was not because of the pattern. It was because it had a drop stitch in it, ah. and she remembered having dropped that stitch. So really, you could probably tell if you'd knitted the thing, if you'd made a mistake in it. Yeah, and so that's <laughs> the origin of that. That's the origin of that story. Legend. And it yeah. has gone, they sell stuff in Ireland with a, with a story written on it, that, but it's not really real. <laughs> <laughs> so anyhow, you can't tie it that precisely. Yeah. People have tried to write books on it, but... I was trying to um, find the exact same patterns from Guernsey's in Devon, trying to find it on Newfoundlanders. But um, I was not really successful. First of all, the photographs where people are wearing Guernsey's, you can't see the pattern, if indeed they still made patterns. They might have had to turn them out so quick that they made them plain, you know. Yeah. And um, also, most photographs were taken in the summer when they didn't have them on. They might have the shirt sleeves on. And they're never on the boat. The photographs were always taken ashore, you know, so... Anyhow, I was not able to make that link. It was going to be a wonderful PhD, <laughs> but it didn't get off the ground. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Should be. They should have done the exact same patterns as in Devon, and probably they did at the beginning. Yeah, but patterns do kind of then change and shift. Yeah, and uh-huh. And uh, maybe the daughter learns how to make the thing but not to put the pattern on, and then she has 12 more children, so, you know. Mm-hmm. You, you talked about how in, in Quebec – 
how knitting had kind of uh, started to die out and then saw a bit of a resurgence. I think. You think? I should that's say your, that's that. That's your theory. Yeah, and this was in the 80s when I was doing my work. Does that, does that pattern happen elsewhere, that kind of thing? It has never out? been extinct. I used to worry about it. When I was really starting knitting seriously in the late 80s, I remember someone saying, I wonder if anyone will ever knit a knitted sock again because you didn't need to. Well, look how many are knit now in all kinds of beautiful patterns. And now with the Internet, I have no worries about knitting becoming extinct. Yeah. But it is more specialized. You don't have to know how to do it now. With It, it started with everything uh, being uh, available from the dollar store and the invention of polar fleece. We all used to wear more sweaters before that. Yeah. So. But I, I think we see that in other traditions, you know, uh, with hooked mats being a good uh, yes. example. You know, there was a period where you could, all of a sudden, you could go to the store and buy a canvas yes. mat, you know, that was made in Vietnam or something yeah. and throw it on your floor. So people stopped making them. And now the tradition has come back. And in some ways, it's strong. You know, it's yes. a strong tradition. It's an art form more. Yeah. And yeah. are we seeing that with knitting? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, we We have everything we need to wear from the dollar store. So we're making things for their beauty and to learn for the challenge of it, not to mention how good it is for you mentally right. <laughs> to have a skill like that and to work at it. Yeah. yeah. Because it seems that in the past, I don't know, however many years, there's been a real kind of resurgence of interest in knitting that lots My of people seem to Dale, be picking it up. My dear Dale, I have seen so many resurgences in knitting. <laughs> <laughs> But it's true right now. Uh, the current one is courtesy of the Internet. Yeah. And I have met many young knitters who learned everything just from YouTube. Right. From the very first casting on the stitches, which is amazing because for the first time in history, you don't have to be shown by right. somebody. You can, you can learn. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You can learn out of the blue. Yeah. Anywhere. But I think the internet also allows for communities to develop in a That's slightly different true. way. That's true. I've never seen anything like that. I mean, we have knitting circles that we like to go to for the fun of it and get the cup of tea. But the, oh, <laughs> here's a funny story. Um, a young girl that I was helping one time was doing a complicated feral pattern. And I said to her, oh, um, if you need any help with that, I've done quite a lot of that. And I'd be happy to. And she said, oh, thank you very much. But I'll just FaceTime the designer in Scotland. <laughs> and I realized, oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> and you would get a story you could tell. You wouldn't be saying there's this old woman trying to help me and when I'd rather talk to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, those Orkneymen coming over. Yeah, they that's They right. couldn't have FaceTimed someone back in Orkney to help them out, could they? No. <laughs> so anyhow, you don't have to know. You can FaceTime the person who wrote the thing. Mm. See what they say. <laughs> yeah. Now, do you, we know historically that lots of men knit. Yes. And uh, at what point did it kind of shift then? Like when, when did it Yeah, not sure about that. In medieval times, all the knitting guilds in Europe, uh, and that's continental Europe that I know of, were only men. Yeah. Especially in France and Italy. Uh, only men, and it was a seven-year apprenticeship, believe me. <laughs> One wonders what they learn, but uh, just about everything, I imagine. And we always know that men who went to sea could knit, men in the Navy could knit. Um, I believe the British Army in First World War, see, that would include Newfoundland, but I don't know about our regiment, but many of those men learned to knit. Um, so there wasn't a stigma but 
I'm just not sure what happened there. And as I've often mentioned, uh, scouts learn to knit because Lord Baden-Powell told them to. Oh, really? And said that all of the explorers that he knew could knit, especially if they were from Scotland. And Sh- and um, Shackleton's men in the polar expeditions could all knit their own stockings. And all cubs should learn it in case they went into the wild as a pioneer or an explorer. <laughs> and that is why generations of boys in the British Empire learned to knit, they no should. matter where they were. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that story. That's interesting. Yeah. It makes yeah. sense, you know. But how many do it now? Yeah. They all made the potholder. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and then, I don't know, something happened. I guess there's a lot more things to do now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but you are. I think we are seeing more young people get interested in in knitting. Oh yes, and they will say, "This is not gender biased." Right. Lots of men will say, yeah. "Young men yeah. will say." So you you teach knitting. What what do you think people are most interested in learning? Just about anything you can teach them in person when you're not on YouTube. Some of the things I don't even teach because they're hard. One is sewing things up. People would love to know how to sew things up so, and pick up edges and do all the trimming and so that for a, sort of for thing. So for a non-knitter, mm-hmm. um, a young it's man called finishing. Been... A course in finishing techniques. Okay, yeah. that is very much in demand. Yeah, and um, a, a bit hard to do because you have to knit up at least sixteen samples before you can take the course to mm-hmm. work on, and that's why it doesn't get taught. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, color work. There are many kinds. The double ball, as we do it here, people really appreciate that. You knit on your own. You figure something out. If you can take a class, you'll often find a better way. Other than that, pretty much anything you offer, if you're teaching it in person, I've always said, okay, a picture is worth a thousand words. A video is worth a million, but I think a personal class... That's right up there in the stratosphere, you know, right. someone who can show you what you're doing wrong. So, yeah, yeah. And it's not the way it's done very much anymore. No. Everything is done uh, on so you can download a course. <laughs> Yeah, it's great though. It's great, much better than having nothing. Believe me. Well, I think if you're doing it, if you're, I think this goes for any skill. If you're, if you're learning in person, then then the person who is mentoring you, if you're doing something wrong, they can help you make corrections. That's you know? right, and, and they and, don't have to Skype the designer. <laughs> you can't do that on YouTube. There's no one. There's no one peering out back at you. You know, it's, it's a more personal kind of process. Yes, I think, I think yeah. so. So just about anything. You'll find here, oh, you know what we really need is teachers for beginning knitting. Yes. Very short of that. I'm not a good one. I like teaching the advanced things. Mm-hmm. But there are some people who are really good at teaching children, and we need lots more people to do that. Yeah. So. You've been teaching the, the Newfoundland, the trigger mitt. Uh-huh. Uh, and is, what, what level of skill do you need to tackle a project like that? I hate to discourage people, but they're not easy. Right. <laughs> you can do a bad one easy, <laughs> but if you want to make one that fits... It's not that I've found, I've identified 16 spots in the pattern where you have to know how to do something special. Okay. And if you and that's where people either just figure something out or whatever, but it's it's fairly advanced knitting. I was very impressed when I first looked at one and thought, "Okay, how is this thing made?" It took some looking at. They're very sophisticated. Do you have a favorite thing to knit? 
Well, I've done three years on the trigger mats. Yeah. Myself and Christine Legros, we worked together on that, trying to bring the old patterns back. They they were not written down, so we're putting them in writing now, which is a lot of fun. And uh, we get to see what they used to do in the past and and give some suggestions in that. Uh, before that, I spent five years on lace knitting, which oh. I really loved. Yeah. And yeah. where did you learn that? that? I learned that I had been on a trip to Shetland, where they are fantastic lace knitters. Actually, I'll just say this is what's made me so interested in historical knitting. Shetland, kind of like here, only they have absolutely no trees, a lot of wind, a lot of rock, no money. You know, um, probably they couldn't read or write. They would have had no electric light. They lived in those black houses. And some of the most fine lace knitting that you've ever seen. I don't even know if those people could count, but the mathematics of the things they made are astonishing, and that is what has always interested me, Mm -hmm. how they could do that. The thing of no electric light alone is pretty amazing. So anyhow, I forget what you asked me, but that's what (laughs) I answered you. (laughs) How long would it take you to do a pair of of trigger mitts? Trigger mitts, uh, six hours a mitten, so 12 hours for a pair. Right. I do know because I knit one most every day. <laughs> <laughs> so are you always knitting? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. I get up especially early to do three or four hours. I'm retired, though. Sorry, folks. <laughs> I get up uh, very early to do a few hours in the morning, and that's what I do all evening. I'm lucky I can do that. My responsibilities are few. Well, I feel like we could we could chat about knitting for ages, um, but uh, we've come to the end of our show. <laughs> we've uh, we have to wrap this uh, this ball of yarns up, I think. So, uh, thank you very very much for coming and chatting with us. And if people want more, uh, if they want to take uh, a class from you, how do they find you? How can people? Well, find you? the two yarn shops are good places to ask. Cast on, cast off, and wool trends. They can always get in touch with me. And at Templeton Center, they know how to get me. Um, I teach privately. If people want to put a little group together, I'll go to your house, that kind of thing, or I'll bring you to mine. I'm Dale Jarvis. You've been listening to Living Heritage, a production of CHMR Radio 93.5, in collaboration with the Intangible Cultural Heritage Office of the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. You can find us online at ichblog.ca or on iTunes. Our production assistant is Stephanie Machikian. We would love to know what you think of the show. Leave us a comment on the Living Heritage Podcast Facebook page or tweet us at ich underscore nl. Thanks for listening.